0: Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Welcome back to the podcast. Trevor Burris is here with us for a third time. Lucky me, lucky you. Trevor is a research fellow at Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, a co-host of the podcast Free Thoughts, great podcast, you should check it out, and the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Today, we're going to be talking about something very important, very misunderstood, I think, campaign finance and campaign finance reform for most people when you think about this you think about dark and corrupting money in politics but some people think about the first amendment and they think that it's an issue that sits at the center of this debate and so today we're going to dig in welcome trevor
1: thanks so much for having me back juliet
0: before we jump in what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Or, I guess the third most important thing? <laughs> yes, I don't know. exactly. What I probably said
1: um, this time. I, I was thinking about this, and I, I think that my answer was uh, is the importance of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, people are usually trying to best they're trying their best with what's available to them. They're probably not trying to be malicious to you or being willfully stupid or anything like that. Um, So it's very, very useful in intellectual life. It's very useful in your personal life to give people a benefit of the doubt um, until you have reason to believe that they're being somewhat malicious or something along those lines. So that's my, my, I guess, third most important thing, uh, as he said.
0: That is very important. I mean, it's hard Especially, I mean, this kind of makes me think about campaign finance and putting money into politics. It's hard to imagine that people are doing things out of good intent all the time, especially if they disagree with you. So let's jump in.
1: Um, You asked the perfect right question there. Yes. Jump in.
0: Should there be money in politics?
1: Um, Okay, I'm going to actually take the first part of what you said uh, as connected to my benefit of the doubt question or statement that the backdrop of campaign finance to me is this question that people have to – people who are politically engaged have to think about. They think about it implicitly if not explicitly and that question is why do people disagree with you? Because if you're a politically engaged person, let's say you're a really partisan Democrat or a partisan Republican, you look at the world and you see that there's you know, 50% of your, your fellow citizens think that you're wrong, and not just wrong, but actually so deeply mistaken that they couldn't even fathom how you would think this way. And then you have to ask yourself what is the explanation that you tell yourself about why people disagree with you? Um, because if you think that you're super reasonable and you you obviously know the right arguments and the right facts, then it's very easy to believe that people disagree with you because of one, they're stupid, two, they're evil, or three, and this is the one that's important here, they're being duped. They are being somehow mind-controlled or duped by what you believe are sort of, you know, Bad forces or self-interested forces? And both sides tend to think this. So about – but it depends on what the force is. So Republicans in the past have tended to think that people are Democrats because they're being duped by Hollywood, mainstream media, um, the university system, public schools. And Democrats tend to think Republicans are being duped by corporate media, by the corporations spending money in elections, by Fox News, of course, and other right-wing media. But that's been a big one for a very long time. They think that to some extent that they're being duped by organizations like the Cato Institute uh, gets accused of being one of these billionaire-interested organizations that is out to brainwash people. So I think that's that's an important point. That is not giving people the benefit of the doubt. That is treating them like they are – uh, children who have been brainwashed. Um, now to your, your next question, is there too much money in politics? Well, every part of that sentence is actually something needs to be examined to get to the heart of what campaign finance regulation is too much. Um, what would too much b- money be? We could talk about that. Second one is money. What is, what constitutes money? For example, uh, buying something, buying political expression for yourself, donating to a candidate directly, uh, donating in kind, for example. So if you donate supplies to a campaign, is that money? Uh, Donating your time, is that money? Um, And then the final one is in politics. And that's actually where things get really, really difficult. What does it mean to be in politics? Uh, at the Cato Institute, we have, we as a 501c3, we have rules that apply to us because we are not allowed to advocate for or against uh, a piece of legislation or a candidate. Uh, that's what other organizations like 501c4s do. Um, so in that sense, you say we're staying out of Politics because we're not being involved in campaigns and actual like sort of lobbying commits. So, not, so that's one definition of politics. Other people think the definition of politics is even bigger, that Cato should be regulated uh, because we talk about political issues and maybe occasionally mention the name of a candidate or an incumbent member of office. So it's a very, very complex question, Juliette, and we can wade into each part of that. Like how what would too much money be? I'm not sure. Some people seem to think they know, I don't know. What is money in politics? Much, much more difficult difficult to figure out. And what is in politics? Well, again, unclear. Is the New York Times in politics? Are documentary filmmakers in politics? Is a race car driver who puts a Bush uh, Cheney sticker on his car in 2004? This is a real case. (laughs) Is he in politics? Uh, Those questions are much more complex than anyone who actually has ever practiced campaign finance law. And this is true across the board. It is a nightmare of regulations. And that is the real sad thing here. Uh, after we got our campaign finance regime, our modern campaign finance regime, which first was in 74 and then later uh 1999 with the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act and some other things in between. But like after that happened, we political speech, which is supposed to be the biggest part of the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects political speech the most. But now political speech is actually regulated more and is less free than pornography. And that's a problem.
0: That's – also surprising because the amount of people I know or have seen on the internet being like, we have to regulate porn 100%. Like, no, no, no. And then, I don't know. Maybe it's just me and the circles that I've seen. But it seems as though less people talk about campaign finance. And I'm guessing well, now, part now of Now they're talking about different
1: things. They're Now they talk more about like Facebook and stuff. We can get to what that is. Right? But less than yeah. like 10 years ago, yeah.
0: So – I think the most important part – and I mean I might be wrong. I think this is also an opinion thing. But I think the most important question of the dissected one is what is money in politics?
1: Well, let me give the, the basic overview and the way that the law kind of works today. Um, so first of all, before – about 1908 and then really – but really before 1976, campaign spending was wide open. Um, how campaigns were run in the 19th century was, was very different too. You had political machines with all this kind of money that they would siphon up to candidates. In 1958, you could give as much as you wanted to a candidate for federal office. Uh, you could give him a million dollars if you wanted to and request favors maybe for that money or maybe not request favors for that money. Uh, But corporations have not been allowed to give to candidates since 1908, for example, uh, nor have unions. Uh, But different political groups have been allowed to give money. Uh, That's giving money to candidates. So this is a very important distinction that I I will make over and over again because it's important to make this very clear because people get this wrong all the time, including like, Barack Obama. Um, a contribution is writing a check to a candidate and saying, you know, uh, pay to the order of, of Hillary Clinton for president and then letting her and her campaign use that money on political ads and other things related to the campaign. It's not going into Hillary Clinton's pocket. There's very strict separations about how you can use campaign money. It used to be the case in the 19th century that you were giving money to the candidate and they kept it, but not so many more. Then the other kind of question is expenditures. So I don't let's say I don't want to write Hillary Clinton a check but I want to get a speaker truck. I want to pay for a speaker truck, you know, one of these trucks that just has speakers and you drive around and you I want to get on the mic And drive around to neighborhoods and talk about how much I love Hillary Clinton or how much I hate Hillary Clinton. And so I just sort of – sort of like the ice cream man, but I want to just drive around and do that. So I'm spending money. Let's say it costs $1,000 to rent that truck and my time to, to voice my own political opinions. That is called an independent expenditure. That is not giving money to the candidate. That is spending money on your own political advocacy. This is a crucial distinction because it has to do with Citizens United. It also has to do with the kind of activity that the First Amendment must protect if you're going to regulate political speech and campaign speech. Um, So let's, let's think about it this way. As soon as you start regulating – oh, by the way, so if I did do the speaker truck, if I did pay $1,000 to drive around the neighborhood talking about a candidate for federal office for or against a candidate for federal office, I would have to register with the government to do that. People who spend more than $200 on an independent expenditure have to disclose themselves to the government for the most basic political speech and that – Uh, directory of people who are spending independently is actually available for public consumption, Uh, just up to $200. Some states actually have uh, one cent is enough to report, but the federal rule rule is $200. Uh, So the question here, though, if we're talking about campaign speech, is the very nature of regulating what someone can do to just promote a candidate as opposed to giving to a candidate means you have to start making distinctions, for example, like the New York Times. The New York Times writes op-eds every presidential election, endorsing or not endorsing a candidate. Is that political speech? Is that obviously it's political speech? But is that kind of regulable campaign speech that should be limited, limited in somehow, or maybe the New York Times should have to disclose or something? They don't have to because they're press. The other the the rest of the question is what do we have what freedoms do we have if the New York Times is press um, and I want to start a blog that talks about a candidate or start a YouTube channel that starts talks about a candidate and people can give me money to support that does uh, that something that the federal government should be regulating and there's a ton of people who say yes it is
0: wow yes it is I personally not my immediate thought what what were these regulations this distinction between a private or an individual expenditure or all that and spending on a candidate giving money to a candidate what what were these regulations trying to address
1: well the big one's come out i mean corruption corruption is like the big word that we'll be using a bunch and we'll have to figure out what that word means and we'll find out that it means very different things to, to both sides of this debate but the big ones came out right after Watergate and so the dissatisfaction with what was happening, you know, the, the break-ins uh, at the Watergate, like Nixon resigning and so this idea that we had to clean up politics. So they passed the Federal Election Campaign Act or they passed amendments to it that are extremely – broad. They regulate political spending and speech like had never been done before. Tons of disclosure rules, tons of r- limits on what you could give to a candidate, t- tons of limits on what you could independently spend on an independent expenditure, and it went to the Supreme Court in 1976-6 in a case called Buckley v. Valeo, which I think might be the longest opinion in Supreme Court history check me on that, but I think it might be the longest reported opinion in Supreme Court history. The Supreme Court issued this massive ruling on the entirety of the act and what parts of it were constitutional and what parts of it were unconstitutional. But in order to say that we have to step back and um, think about the First Amendment, I mentioned political speech is the heart of the First Amendment. It's the core of what the First Amendment protects. But what this means when the Supreme Court hears a case about that someone is alleging that my political speech has been infringed when, when political speech is the most protected, it means that it gets something called strict scrutiny, which is another way of saying that it says that the government has to regulate it when it does regulate it. It has to regulate it with a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer. Let me give you an analogy here. So the government has to have a reason for regulating the speech um, that is not, the reason cannot be shutting down the speech. This is like, so let's say that there was, um, a park where people always passed out political pamphlets in this park. It was just sort of like a, a very common thing. And one of the people in, in this park is passing out a pamphlet saying that the you should, you know, uh, not reelect the sheriff or not reelect some city council member. Let's say it's the sheriff. And so then the sheriff comes in and starts shutting down the the pamphleteering in the park and they say well why are you doing this and he says well it's because we have a littering problem which you think is pretextual because you're like no it's because people are passing out pamphlets against the sheriff and they claim it's a littering problem Um, and so they they shut down all pamphleteering in the park and so you sue and you say you're violating my free speech and what the government says in response is no we're trying to treat a littering problem not a speech problem and what the courts will do is they'll say, you have to do this very narrowly. You cannot hit it with a sledgehammer. If there's a littering problem because of political speech in this park, go after the littering specifically. Don't go after the speech with a sledgehammer. And that's essentially what we're talking about when we talk about the decision in Buckley v. Valeo. So um, the decision in Buckley v. Vallejo, the court comes in and says that the government has to have a good reason to be regulating campaign expenditures and campaign donations. Uh but that reason cannot be shutting down speech. It has to be something different. Just like the analogy in the part, the reason cannot be shutting down speech. And so the court said the the only compelling reason the government has to regulate how much money people spend in elections is to stop corruption. And what they mean by corruption in this is called quid pro quo corruption, which means this for that corruption, which means you go to a candidate with a big bag that has a dollar sign on it. You said, hey, here's a contribution. I want you to give me some sort of political favor or some sort of handout, right? That kind of corruption, the classic sense of corruption. Um, and so if that's the compelling interest that the government has, but therefore the laws have to be tailored to addressing that problem. Um, so what the court said was, therefore campaign contributions, there's an interest in that. There's an interest in because that's how you would corrupt someone. You could limit campaign contributions because that's how you would corrupt a candidate. But limiting independent expenditures doesn't have the same sort of concerns to it. And so that's how we created this distinction between independent expenditures and campaign contributions because of they have different justifications for why you would regulate them. But the idea is that if you just spend money on behalf of a candidate on your own, not give it to them, then it's not corrupting in the same way as a contribution, which I think is, is likely true.
0: What problems arose with the regulations that were created in the 1970s?
1: Oh, I mean, so many. Here's <laughs> <Given laughs> what you mean, do you mean like constitutional defects or do you mean just like what happened because of these regulations?
0: I guess start with what happened generally.
1: Well, again, like it's important to take a step back and like think about the big picture here. People should be deeply skeptical of people who run for office, elected officials, regulating the rules by which they run for office. This is just like 101. It's public choice 101. Uh, Or as James Buchanan Buchanan used to say, don't let the foxes guard the hen house, which is is just to say, don't let people who are politically self-interested to rig elections in their favor do that. Um, Here's what they knew. At the time when the incumbents were passing the Federal Election mm-hmm. Campaign Act, or at least the ones who were savvy enough to know this, they knew that if you're an incumbent member of the House or the Senate, you have a massive advantage over people challenging you. Uh, just think about what that like. Just you have name recognition. You can you know you can go on TV. I- imagine if. Um, Imagine if, like today, I decided to run for Congress, or and right, and and then I'm running against my my congressman, but like no one knows who I am. So the first thing I have to do is I have to spend money. So I have ads out there that tell people who I am, that give me some sort of notoriety, like to just to be on the same level as my member of Congress. Um, And the members of Congress have franking privilege; they get to mail things to their constituents for free, which I don't have. That if I were challenging that member of Congress, Uh, so if if none of us had any money. Like let's say you took away took away all money in politics, which again, if you go back to my previous uh statements, I don't even know what that would mean. It might mean that the New York Times isn't allowed to talk about politics. It might mean that Cato's not allowed to talk about politics. But let's say that we zero out or we make entirely equal. we say, all right member incumbent member of the House gets five hundred thousand dollars, and Trevor Burris gets five hundred thousand dollars. so that sounds fair, doesn't it? Absolutely, it's completely unfair to me. And almost every single one of those instances, the incumbent is going to win. So just like a regulated business understands that if it has the ability to deal with the regulations better than someone who is a startup, right, Walmart understands that it can like be for regulations because it has the the finances, the lawyers, all the ability to comply with regulations. But someone who's trying to challenge Walmart has a much harder time doing that, especially if Walmart can write the regulations in its favor, What politicians have done, starting with the Federal Election Campaign Act, is basically write regulations of elections in the favor of incumbents. And so what we've seen on on every sort of metric is that it has become significantly harder since 1976 to dethrone an incumbent. Uh, I have actually some stats here to give you an example. Um, The... And also, not only is it impossible to dethrone an incumbent, increasingly, I mean, usually 90% plus of House members get reelected. But we've also very much created safe districts. Now, this is not the only reason we have these safe districts, but like we have very, very few competitive districts. Now, there's sorting that has happened, and we could talk about that, but we there are papers that track this with campaign spending. It is so much harder to unseat an incumbent today so that we have... Like So no contest elections, meaning people who are in safe seats so they don't even have to please their constituents, are up 25 percent since 1976 when this law was passed. And extremely competitive elections – this is in the House uh, – are down 42 percent since this law was passed. So on one level of your question, I would say the politicians got exactly what they wanted. They pr- they protected their positions if there happened to be an incumbent um, and created a, a less representative and less interesting democracy – because of it. But that was the point.
0: So let's talk about Citizens United versus the FCC or FEC. My bad. I still get confused. They just sound so similar (laughs) when you say them as acronyms. In that particular decision, the Supreme Court ruled that independent political expenditures, expenditures? Yes. Expenditures by unions and corporations, including nonprofits such as Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, NRA, all that stuff, are protected under the First Amendment and are not subject to restriction by government, which seems like so different, not necessarily from what happened before. Well, kind of. So what, what was the decision and what was the rationale of that?
1: All right, so this is a good time, definitely a good time to talk about this, since we've kind of laid out the the groundwork of independent expenditures, campaign contributions, the nature of these kind of regulations. So, what had happened in the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, or McCain-Feingold, as it's often called, is that a bunch of rules had come in to stop "quote unquote" soft money, which I won't really get into what that means. Uh, but it, one of the rules that came in is said that. The, uh, for-profit corporations and nonprofit profit corporations could not spend money money out of their general funds as you said uh on ind- independent expenditure uh and so that created a bunch of issues going to back what i was talking about for example what does it mean to say something is in politics because you would have a bunch of issues like for example the new york times is a corporation and the new york times talks about And endorses candidates all the time. Uh, So they had to have, as I've mentioned before, they had to have a a media exception to this for the First Amendment. Uh, But it gets very hairy, and this is how it gets really, really complicated. The case Citizens United really could have been called Michael Moore and Miramax Films versus FEC. Why is that? Because Michael Moore, if you, you know who, he is, not as relevant now as he was in the 2000s, um, but he's a documentary filmmaker who's very, very left-wing. And he makes documentaries for the purpose of trying to change people's minds and also to influence elections. So in 2004, after we had invaded Iraq and Bush was quite unpopular, we, Michael Moore decided to make a movie called Fahrenheit 9-11. And Fahrenheit 9-11 is essentially a two-hour anti-Bush campaign ad that we have no doubt that he wanted to make that movie, as is his First Amendment right, to influence voters and in how they vote and whether they would vote for Bush in the 2004 election. Now, the problem here – so generally speaking, federal the campaign finance laws don't regulate movies, generally speaking – um, unless they're paid for by a corporation, at least at this time. But they do uh, they do regulate over-the-air ads. And so the the commercials for this movie, and I remember them well, had clips from the movie and 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 they were kind of like a 30-second anti-Bush. They had all these embarrassing things that Bush said and said, Come see <laughs> Fair Night 9-11. But it was kind of like like the classic one is the is when he's golfing and he says, We will eliminate terrorists anywhere. And then he says, Now watch this drive. And like it's not good optics. Um so, Basically, this group called Citizens United, which is a 501C3 and C4, uh, very conservative group uh, that uh, had done different act- activism at different times, they decided to file a complaint at the FEC saying the ads, the ads and the movie, but especially the ads, uh, the ads are um, a illegitimate. Camp, campaign finance expenditure by a corporation because Doggy Dog Films, Michael Moore's corporation that that paid for the movie, uh, they are a corporation, and Miramax Films distributes it, and they are a corporation. So essentially, these these corporations are violating this provision of McCain-Feingold. that says corporations can't advocate for or against a candidate, uh, federal candidate, of election, and so. The FEC had to chew on this because it seems like pretty clear that, again, the purpose of this was to influence the election and it was paid for by a corporation. But the FEC said, well, this could be really problematic. I mean, you probably see this, Juliet. Like if we start regulating documentary filmmakers, how far does this go? And so the FEC decided that uh, Michael Moore received a permission slip to make this movie, so to speak. And this is an important point that I'll, I'll use this concept a bunch All of these sort of exceptions, the New York Times gets an exception as a corporation. Apparently, Michael Moore and Dog Eat Dog Films gets an exception as a corporation. They're getting permission slips from the government to criticize the government, which is really, really problematic under the First Amendment. The the rule of the First Amendment is that I don't have to ask the government for permission to criticize the government, but campaign finance laws operate that way. So Michael Moore's, the Matterhorn Review at the FEC, they conclude that that the film Fahrenheit 9-11 is a bona fide commercial activity and artistic activity. Therefore, Michael Moore gets a permission slip. Great, says Citizens United. In 2008, we're going to do the same thing. Michael Moore gets a permission slip. We're a nonprofit corporation. We receive money from for-profit corporations, but we're going to make a movie. And that movie is a very long campaign ad against Hillary Clinton. It's just called Hillary the Movie. And it's not good. I've watched it. It just has bit as people complaining about Hillary Clinton and how horrible she is. I mean, this is how long Hillary Clinton has been around. I mean, this is two thousand eight. you know she just never kind of goes away. Um, but so <laughs> th- so she that's what this movie is. And Citizens United knows that that, that someone's going to file a complaint at the FEC about this too. And at this time the FEC rules that this is not an okay expenditure, that, that Citizens United does not get a permission slip, unlike oh. Michael Moore got a permission slip. And so Citizens United says we're gonna to go to the Supreme Court. Now their first argument was narrower. It was narrower. It was they were trying to say we deserve the same exception that Michael Moore got, because uh one, like we want to put this on pay-per-view. That was one of their arguments. So, like so people if people just like people going to the movies to pay to see Fahrenheit 911 because they want to be influenced uh citizens united want to put this on pay per view so you pay for it because you want to be influenced and we want to advertise this so they sought like a narrower ruling as applied to them <clears throat> and during the oral argument the deputy solicitor general who was advocating for this uh f- for you know the prohibition on Citizens United to be able to make this movie and distribute this movie. He was asked by one of the justices whether or not it was his position that if a corporation paid for a 500-page book that was called The History of the United States and that the very last sentence of that book, it said, if you agree with the stuff in this book, you should vote for this federal candidate. Was it his position? Was it the government's position that that means that they could ban books? Like so, and the guy looked. He looked at the justices in the faces, and he said, "Yes, it is the government's position that we can ban books." Huh? And this is the real irony here. As I mentioned when I said political speech is less protected than pornography, the thing about this whole rubric, this whole system we have, is it, if you notice, it's this—it's the inclusion of a sentence that says "vote for this candidate" that suddenly makes that book less protected than it was before, because now it's. In politics, going back to the first question. Now, according to sort of federal law, it makes it in politics in a way that it wasn't before because it has direct advocacy for a candidate. And so the justices were understandably taken aback saying that, okay, this is supposedly the most, you know, sacred values of our constitution, protecting the ability to criticize your government. And a member of that government just stood in front of us and said he can ban a book because just because it was funded by a corporation, because it has one sentence in it. And so they asked the case to be re-argued. Uh, they said, we are going to re-argue this case on a broader question, not the narrower question of whether or not Citizens United gets an exemption because it's pay-per-view or something like that. We're going to ask whether or not the entire prohibition on corporations using their money on independent expenditures, again, not giving to candidates, just using their own money on independent expenditures, or that entire thing is unconstitutional. And that's what the Supreme Court said, yes, the entire thing is unconstitutional. The really scary thing about this decision is that four justices disagreed, that there were four justices who do not understand the importance of politi- free political speech, who believe in these sort of canards about money in politics and that we have too much money in politics and it's not money, it's it's not speech, it's money. We can talk about those. As opposed to the basic principle here is that, and, and every time Hillary Clinton ever said Citizens United was wrongly decided, you had to be like, yes, this was a, because they tried to make a movie criticizing you, Hillary Clinton, and of course you think that should be illegal. And so, that's what they struck down. And the reason they struck it down, and Chief Justice Roberts in his concurring opinion is very, very clear about this. And I invite everyone to go read this. The reason they struck it down is because they were going, they were like, we, this entire idea of permission slips. The government giving out permission slips to Michael Moore, to the ACLU, maybe to some sort of bona fide you know, advocacy nonprofit corporations, to the New York Times—like the entire idea is just corrupt from the beginning. And we're going to get rid of it. Like we're not—we're not, we're not going to have the government in the business of deciding which corporations are allowed to speak because they decide that they're bona fide artistic imp- expression or bona fide commercial expression or whatever. That's so anathema to the First Amendment that the only solution to this is to rule this entire thing unconstitutional and overrule a really, really crazy and just insane case from 1990 called Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, uh, which we can get into what that was about. But that that's what it did. It did not overturn a century of law. It did not say that corporations can give to candidates. Corporations still can't give to candidates. They haven't been able to since 1908. Um, it it merely said we're no longer going to be in the business of giving permission slips to various corporations because five members of the FAC have decided this. Um, it's very, very you know, against the principles of the first amendment, it should have been an easy case. It should have been something that had all the justices on board. Instead, it made everyone lose their minds. Uh, the, Barack Obama even went up on his State of the Union shortly after the decision was issued, went before um, both both houses of Congress and some of the justices and mischaracterized it five different ways and uh, saying that it allowed foreign corporations to give to candidates, that it allowed corporations to give to candidates, that it struck down a century of law. All of these are wrong. It struck down an extremely aberrant case from 1990 called the Austin case, and it reestablished the principles of the First Amendment, which is that you do not need to ask permission from the government to criticize it, and it doesn't matter if that's a corporation, a union, or an individual.
0: Yet, people are so infuriated about this decision. They see it as the unleashing of big money, dark money. First, what is dark money, and also what is their evidence that this unleashes the big and dark money? What do you say to these people?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, part of winning the political rhetoric game, playing it, is to come up with the right s- sales pitches, and everyone does this, and I've rarely heard of a, a sales pitch that's better than uh, than dark money. I mean, sometimes in gun policy, like assault weapons or military style, things like this are also sales pitches, but dark money, is you know, it sounds so nefarious. And these are people, dark money doesn't really have a definition. Um, if you're someone like Sheldon Whitehouse, who thinks basically, remember what I said at the very beginning, the animating principle here, in my opinion, the animating psychological like belief here is that, Sheldon Whitehouse, is, I'm just going to use him as an example, he also had a big loss at the Supreme Court today, uh, but Sheldon Whitehouse, in a good way, um, Sheldon Whitehouse believes that anyone who disagrees with him is being paid to, essentially. I mean, he is called you know Cato, he is called PLF, he is called any the Federalist Society. He believes that any of this stuff you're being paid to disagree with him. Like w- that I don't actually believe what I believe that I just like have to get uh, my daily call from Charles Koch and my marching orders and F- X, Y, and Z. Um, and that's, that's the core of what he's talking about that. The, and so for him, dark money is anything in politics that doesn't have donors disclosed, like basically anything. So Even though Cato, for example, because we do not get involved – again, remember this big question here, what is in politics? Well, under federal law, like we're not in politics if we don't advocate for or against candidates. Uh, But Sheldon Whitehouse and many other people on that side believe that even what Cato is doing, uh, we should be disclosing our donors so people know who's behind what's going on. and so he calls all of that dark money, right? So uh, everything from Cato's donors to 501c4 donors to any of these stuff, like those are all dark money to him. So this is part of the reason why it doesn't have a real meaning. Generally, people say it's because it's it's non-disclosed donors advocating in the political sphere. But again, like I said. Everyone has a different men- meaning of what, uh, definition of what in the political sphere is. Some are incredibly broad, uh, and some are narrow. Now, the First Amendment sort of demands, at least as the court currently interprets it. And I think that Sheldon Whitehouse, if he tried to regulate this stuff the way he would want to, he would lose 9-0, even amongst the liberal justices. But the idea here is that, is that When should someone's donors be disclosed? And does it even matter if donors are disclosed? Should you be able to give anonymously? I mentioned you today, Juliette, uh, there's a case that um, is imminently going to be decided by the Supreme Court about the ability to keep donors uh, anonymous. The the court will likely say that there is a right to anonymous speech. And of course there's a right to anonymous speech. The Federalist Papers were written under the, the pseudonym Publius, right, and the, the idea of writing anonymously under pseudonyms, uh, usually classical authors, was a well-established practice at the time of the founding. Now the next question is, does it matter about giving anonymously? Does that should that be disclosed? And the funny thing is, most people uh they say, well, yeah, yeah, it should, until suddenly their, their activities are implicated. Like, should Planned Parenthood's donors be disclosed? Should the NAACP's donors be disclosed? Black Lives Matter, the conservatives recently had started asking for the donors to black lives matter to be exposed so they could pursue their own kind of Sheldon white house campaign against black lives matter. This is an interest that all of us have. And the term dark money, again, it's just, it's just a, it's an empty, but powerful concept for whoever, whatever organizations you think that donors should be disclosed. And again, until that comes and bites you, you could say, oh, everything that the Koch brothers do or all of Cato's Institute's donors should be disclosed. But as soon as we turn that around, it's like, all right, do Black Lives Matter. Do the NAACP in Alabama in 1958. So in Alabama in 1958... Tried to get all the donors to the NAACP, uh, you know, disclosed and exposed for for let's say obvious reasons, right? Like they wanted to be able to be, you know, identify the donors to the NAACP so they could go, I don't know, burn crosses on their lawn. And the Supreme Court ruled in that case that you have a right to give or anonymously. Or burn them. Yes, you have a right to give anonymously, um, and that is protected by the First Amendment. So it's just empty rhetoric, but extremely powerful. Dark money. It's. It's. I mean, I, I. I admire you know the rhetoric. I admire the ability to come up with such a term, but it's it's completely empty.
0: I have thought a lot about anonymous donating recently. I've had a lot of arg- argument debates, more like about the topic, and I felt in my core that. It was a good thing, but I never really had a good, grounded way to express that. And the more I think about it, I think about how free speech is protected because we are protecting the little guy, the minority. You don't and want all the someone, cogs. yeah, just everyone. Well,
1: We also have to, we have to protect all the cogs in the machine. Um, <clears throat> that's vital, like not to cut you off. But I, I want to I'll, I'll, something. I'll, I'm going to read you something uh, from Justice Scalia. Yes. This goes to the question about money versus speech, right? The biggest piece of BS, if I may be so bold, um, in the campaign finance debate is the, it's not speech, it's money. This is so unbelievably disingenuous at the, at the minimum. But like, let me put it this way. <clears throat> These laws were passed intentionally, and I can read you some quotes too from this. These laws were intentionally passed to stop political advertisements they were intentionally passed to shut up people by draining the money. Like we have quotes from the floor of Congress. Um, I will pull up one of those now, actually. So I have my, I have my presentation I give on this, which has some of these quotes. we have quotes from the floor of Congress um, upon the debate uh, over the McCain Feingold bill. Uh, so here's one uh, from John McCain. Uh, so, the, so, so, the, so here's a quote. So the Millionaires Amendment, which is an amendment that limited, uh, that affected how millionaires can run for Congress. In all candor, it's a concern that virtually any non millionaire member of this body has. And that, that is that they wake up some morning and pick up the paper and find out that some multimillionaire is going to run for their seat. And that person intends to invest uh, 3, 5, 8, 10, now 70 million of their own money in order to win. So John McCain is trying to stop people from challenging him for office. Here's another one about outside groups. This is still John McCain. These groups often run ads that the candidates themselves disapprove of. Further, these ads are almost always negative attack ads and do little to further beneficial debate and a healthy political dialogue. To be honest, they simply drive up an individual candidate's negative polling numbers and increase public cynicism for public service in general. So John McCain is explicitly saying on the floor of the Senate that the reason for drying up the money is to stop political speech that drives up candidates' negative polling numbers. This is as explicit of censorship as you could possibly have. Um, Now, that's going back to the money of speech. So, I mean, I have tons of these quotes uh, over and over again. There's one from Dick Durbin where he is complaining about how he was going through the election and he slumped down into his chair and he turned on the TV and up pops four television commercials, one after the other, every one of them blasting me. What a treat it was to sit in the chair and get pummeled by four different television commercials. This is a sitting U.S. center still literally telling on the floor of the Senate that he is intending to dry up the money because people are making television commercials that criticize him. B-O-O-H-O-O, Dick Durbin. I am so sorry you get criticized as a politician. Uh, but that's the point about the money is speech. Having read you those quotes, imagine if they dried up the money and then no, and it didn't eliminate any campaign ads. They were like, somehow the campaign ads, it didn't, it didn't work. Then they would be very upset that their censorship didn't work. They, they, so if the, if drying up the money didn't dry up speech, they wouldn't even want to do it. And the, so Canard, that this is not this is not speech; it's money. Well, here's what um, here's what um, Justice Scalia wrote in his dissent in the McConnell v. FEC case: <clears throat> In any economy operated on even the most rudimentary rudimentary principles of division of labor, effective public communication requires the speaker to make use of the services of others. Others, an author may write a novel, but he will seldom publish and distribute it himself. A freelance reporter may write a story, but he will rarely edit, print, and deliver it to subscribers. To a government bent on suppressing speech, this mode of organization presents opportunities. Control any cog in the machine, and you can halt the whole apparatus. License printers, and it matters little whether authors are still free to write. Restrict the sale of books, and it matters little who prints them. Predictably, repressive regimes have exploited these principles by attacking all levels of the production and dissemination of ideas. That is what is happening here. That is why these candidates are drying up the money. That is why they're going after money that is used against them because the division of labor offers this opportunity to them to say it's not speech, it's money.
0: Wow. It's fascinating but not shocking at all. Well,
1: I mean, they're politicians. Of course it's not shocking.
0: <laughs> okay. So final question. Thank you so much for all of this. I feel like we could talk for like, a gajillion years about this what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why
1: yeah, this is a good one um kind of going back to some of the things i've mentioned uh on this episode so i i mean i've always considered myself a libertarian since i was like 12 but like i did come from a conservative household like not a, a non-religious sort of conservative household and i did believe that conservatism and sort of the republican party were more friendly to libertarians for a very long time and nope. it ha- well well of course um but it is you know it obviously i mean i i haven't believed this for for you know many like 15 years now but it all become even clearer in the trump era about what conservatism is Like, conservatism has nothing to in common with free markets there's nothing about conservatism i mean american conservatism can be like burkean you know trying to preserve the constitution or something but what we see today and like i said like conservatives will will use the cudgel of the state immediately and as soon as they can to say you know, control public education to make sure that critical race theory is not being taught to, to students in public education, which goes to my theory that conservatives have never been against public education. They've just been against public education that they don't run, and now they want to run it. And so you have you know, DeSantis in Florida saying we're going to have to teach different anti, uh, anti-communism things and things like this. So. And now they want to, you know, conservatives say we have a right to spin in elections, but now they want to, you know, disclose Black Lives Matters funders. So what we're seeing today is that American right wing is becoming more like what the right wing is in the rest of the world, like. In Europe, they've known this forever. The right wing in European countries is nationalistic and identitarian um, and traditionalistic. That's what they tend to be, right? And so like in Poland, that's what the way it is. In Germany, that's the way it is. That's the way we're becoming here. And libertarians need to be very, very aware of the fact that we are not of the right and we're not of the left. I mean, the single dimension political spectrum is silly, but we are fundamentally liberals who uphold values like the ability to anonymously give to organizations, no matter if it's Black Lives Matter or if it's the Cato Institute, uh, because it's the right thing to do um, and that conservatives are not really our friends. So, But that's something that I think over time, especially since I was a teenager, became more and more clear to me.
0: Thank you. I definitely have seen that also um especially recently thank you so much for being on the podcast always and a thank pleasure thank you for sharing trevor well that's all we have time for today i'd like to thank my guest once again for their time and insight i would also like to thank everyone who listens subscribes and shares the great antidote podcast if you would like to be on the podcast or if you have a guest in mind please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at the cgo.org bye